0: Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of Ruby Book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of CodeNewbie.
1: I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. Continuing on with chapter six of Pat Shaughnessy's Ruby Under a Microscope, today we're going to be discussing the global and inline method caches, including modules into classes and including modules into one another, and also learning about how module prepend works.
0: Remember to follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. How did you find this week's reading? I was really excited about this week's reading. I remember last week I mentioned how I was wondering what happens when there's multiple modules and how does one overwrite the other. And I was very excited to turn the page and find out that that is a big chunk of our reading. So I
1: really liked it. It was good. What about you? I really liked this reading. I just found it really interesting how the methods are stored and how we look them up. And it all makes sense. Like everything made sense and was quite straightforward, but it was just, it was quite cool. And and, and we're going to get on later to the whole modules, including modules into one another. And there's something about order, which we hinted at last week. It was a concern you had. And so it was really cool to, to, Mm
0: -hmm. to go
1: into that in more detail. And I just thought, again, the examples were great. So yeah, I really enjoyed it.
0: Cool. So let's begin with the global method cache. Indeed. So in this section, we talk about how when Ruby is looking up a method, it uses two caches called a global method cache and an inline method cache to make that lookup process more efficient. And so the first type of cache we're going to look at is the global method cache. So here... Pat tells us that Ruby uses the global method cache to save a mapping between the receiver and implementer classes. So we have a table to show us what that looks like. This is table 6-1. And here we have two columns. We have two columns. The first column is titled class with a K, and the right column is titled defined underscore class. So under class with a K, we have a couple entries. The first one is fixnum hashtag times, and that is mapped to integer hashtag times under the defined class. And then for our next row, we have object hashtag puts, and that's mapped to basic object hashtag puts. So here we're showing that in the left column, we have the class of the object you call a method on. And on the right column, we have the results of that method lookup. So if we are calling fix num times, and then the defined class is mapped to integer hashtag times, then we know that when Ruby did that lookup, it actually found that times method in our integer class. hmm and once it has that method, Ruby can essentially skip that entire method lookup process the next time. And it knows that if you call fixed times, no matter where
1: it's being called or who's calling it, it just goes straight to integer times. So that's the global method cache. And then we also have the inline method cache. And this is to speed up method lookup even more. And so what this cache does is it saves information alongside the YARV instructions. So we've got figure 6-8, dash which shows YARV instructions on the left and how that maps to an implementation of integer uh, hashtag times on the right. I I feel weird saying hashtag, but I'm just gonna go with it since that's (laughs) what I'm saying. So what we see is on the left-hand side, we've got the YARV instructions for a 10. times do method. And so we've got put object 10, and that pushes 10, the fixed num 10 onto the YARV's internal stack. And this receives the times method call. And then we've got send with our favorite thing call info mid Colon times arg colon zero, and then we have a send which has our favorite call info mid times etc cetera, etc cetera, instruction, and so what happens is Ruby's inline cache saves a mapping between that send instruction and the integer hashtag times. So we then go to Figure six nine, and it shows graphically what's happening. So now the R instructions say put object 10, send, and then instead of the call info mid stuff that we're used to seeing, there's now a box in there which says integer hashtag times, and that maps to the integer or a reference to the integer hashtag times method. And so when Ruby is executing this code, it doesn't have to look for the integer times method. It it just executes it straight away.
0: So the thing I was a little confused about with these two caches is, are they being used together? Is it either or? Like, What's the relationship between the global method cache and the inline method cache?
1: I think they're both being used at the same time wherever possible. So wherever you can collapse and send instructions down to the method, it will do. And then whenever you call methods in a particular class, it will then look at the global method cache as well. So I think they're both being accessed. They must be. How are they related?
0: Like, for example, is it that the global method cache is the first thing Ruby does and then in addition it goes, because I mean, it can't look up two caches, like that wouldn't make sense.
1: So I think, for example, let's take, let's look across the two examples of global method cache and the inline cache. We have a fixed number, so we call 10.times. Maybe this is not the best example, but, and so the global method cache stores that when you call 10.times, you're really calling integer.times. So that's one level, which is knowing I'm calling integer.times. And then I think the second level is, then you've got the YARV instructions for 10.times. And it's storing how you execute that method within the YARV instructions. So it's saying, so we've got the send call info mid. So it's saying we're calling the method times on 10. And so we already know that that's a fixed I'm calling the times method. So we know that maps to integer hashtag times. So we get that from the global cache. And then it's storing that information so the defined class information within the yav instructions is how I think they work.
0: so it's storing it in two places
1: or maybe I see it more as an interpolation. so there's two mappings. It's like okay, I know that anytime you call a fixed num hashtag times it's actually integer hashtag times. So then now I go to my YARV instructions and look I've got fixed num hashtag times. so it must be that this any send instruction relates to the fixed num I can just interpolate integer hashtag times everywhere. So it's almost like you've got a high level mapping, and then you go and slot it in to wherever you need to call it quickly. Not clear? Um, It's like a key. I think you should think of the global method cache as like a key. When I have apples, I also have pairs with them. And then you go through all of the documents you've got. And every time you see apples, you slot in pairs as well, because that's what the key tells you to do. I
0: understand what you're saying, but it sounds like they're they're still doing the same thing like one it, one is a shorthand of
1: the other so th- so the global method cache so think about the global method cache it is storing all methods all different types so when we look at this send instruction in figure 6-8 it doesn't need to know about the what object.puts maps to or what any other methods map to it just needs to look up the the mapping that's relevant to it from the global method cache. So you're basically saying that the global
0: method cache is a general place where it stores the, the values it's already done, and then inline method cache is where it assigns it?
1: Yes, kind of. Like
0: it assigns it to specific places where it is actually used? Yes,
1: that's what I'm saying, kind of. So I'm okay. basically saying, yeah, you've got this overall... Mapping which says when you have a fixed num.times, it's actually an integer.times. When you have a this, it's actually a that. And then you're going through your specific calls of fixed num.times and using the almost like the dictionary, you're translating that into the, the information that you've got stored in the global cache. Yeah,
0: I would agree with that. It's like the fact that Pat didn't explicitly say that is what makes me feel like. Maybe that's not correct. because, okay. fair enough. Because, like, so in the last, um, one of, like, the last paragraphs, right above figure 6-9, he says, the rectangle on the right side of the figure represents the integer times method, which Ruby found using its method lookup algorithm after looking up the times method among the fixed num class in its superclasses. So that's, like, the opportunity where I would have expected him to say, after it used the method lookup, or reference
1: the global clash. Like that would have been like the perfect time. I think that is what happens. As in, we have the global cache, so it doesn't have to look up. And I think if we are right in this, then Pat could have said that there. And so, yeah. I definitely think that's what happens, and I think that was an opportunity to say that. Right, yeah. So if that's what happens, that totally makes sense. It just makes you wonder, like, Pat, why didn't
0: you include that? Because that would have been the perfect place to make that connection between the two.
1: Because it says, and if you look at the paragraph before the heading, the inline method cache, it says, the global method cache allows a Ruby to skip the method lookup process. Exactly, right, yeah. Yeah next time your code calls a method mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah that's why I was like but connect connect the two okay cool it's almost like he's gone for a modular approach so he's treating each thing in mm-hmm. isolation I'm going to tell you about the global method cache now I'm going to tell you about the inline method cache and you could have read either one like he could have restructured it such that we learned about inline method cache first but I think they are linked in that way that we suspect yeah.
0: Yeah. And so in that case, having an additional paragraph, because the next thing we're going to talk about is clearing Ruby's method caches, having an additional one that says this is how the two work together would be really helpful. So next edition, Pat, you got some, <laughs> You to get a new uh, paragraph to add in. <laughs> So now we're going to talk about clearing Ruby's method caches. So this needs to happen because sometimes we have a new method we need to define. We need to redefine an existing method. We need to sometimes remove a method. I don't know if I've actually actively removed a method before, like using the undefined method. Have you done that before?
1: No, I don't understand this undef thing.
0: Yeah, I don't But
1: I think you just delete the method, right?
0: That's what that's what I assume. Yeah, the whole undef thing is is
1: interesting and I think it's just you know. an internal thing. So really when okay. you delete a method inside Ruby calls undef on some mm-hmm. other thing it's got going on. So when any of
0: these things happens, then Ruby needs to clear the global and the inline method caches
1: and force a new call to the lookup to the method lookup code. So next we're going to talk about including two modules into one class. And so Pat starts by telling us that, okay, it may have been simple and straightforward with Ruby's method lookup algorithm, but now that we're talking about including modules, it's not going to be quite so smooth sailing. So we saw before that when we include a module into a class, Ruby inserts a copy of this modules R class into the class's ancestor chain. So when we include two modules The second module is going to appear first in the ancestor chain. And that one is found first by Ruby's method lookup logic. So to understand what that's saying, we have example six six, and we've got some code which says class mathematician, which inherits from the person class. And then we do include professor. And then on the next line, we have include employee. So the question is, Which methods does Ruby find first and which methods override which? So we've got figures 6-10 and 6-11, which shows us what happens. And again, I really appreciate Pat breaking it down and doing it step by step. So first of all, the first line is include professor. So figure 6-10 shows us what happens there. And we saw something like this, I think, last week. So we've got mathematician R class with its super pointer that points to the copy of the professor's R class structure, and then that super pointer points to the R class of person. Mm-hmm. Now, when we include the employee module, we get something similar, but this time the super class for mathematician points to the copy of the R class structure for employee, and that super pointer then points to the included class for professor, which then points to person. So this means that employee was included second but it becomes the immediate superclass to mathematician. So that means that when method lookup is happening, any methods in employee will override any methods in professor because employee will be reached first. So if you have a method called name, then if that's defined in employee and also defined in professor, you're going to end up using the one in employee. And in turn, any methods in professor will override person. So I thought this was interesting because we discussed last week about how, oh, it's Mm -hmm. a bit weird because it's very on Ruby-like that order should matter. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, thinking about this, I guess a decision has to be made, right? It's weird that you're dependent right. on order, but a decision has to be made. So it makes sense that, you know, there's a simple pattern, which is when you've got an, a module included, that goes next immediately after the the main class, it, the super pointer points to that, that in- inclusion. So that makes sense. And I guess that in reality, and we spoke about this a bit last week again, the modules shouldn't be overlapping that much. So if you have like three modules included and they've all got right. name methods and they've all got, I don't know, age methods, for example, then it doesn't sound like you've written good OO code with well-defined yeah. responsibilities anyway. <laughs> so although- You have other problems. Yeah, you've got other problems. That's what I think. So although it's like a bit weird, cause it's like, oh wow, if I switch it around, it can affect um, where, where my methods are read from. I also think that if you've got issues with changing the orders, then there's something else wrong in your code base.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know about you, but it when I first looked at this, it kind of threw me off a little bit because when we're looking at the actual code, the listing 6-6, where it says class, mathematician, inheriting from person, and then include professor, include employee, it's it's like a different order than what the our class structures look like where we start with mathematician, then go to employee, then professor, then person. So when I was kind yes. of comparing the two, right? There wasn't like a direct visual mapping the way that I... It's essentially I, the other way around. Yeah, yeah. And and even then it's weird because with the mathematician inheriting from person, like person is at the top mm-hmm. in six six, and then person is at the bottom. Like, it just the words don't... They're not next to each other the way that I expect them to be um, across the two. But it does behave the way that we said it was going to, which makes me very happy. So last week we said how, well, the last one is probably the one that overrides everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's exactly what happened. So I felt good about that.
1: That's good. And I think, yeah, if you just know the general rule, then it's like that cognitive load of switching everything yeah. around in your head. <laughs> and you say inherit, but then it's like, what does it mean if something becomes a super class of something else and then the methods mm-hmm. override each other's methods. And so just getting that straight in my head, it did take yeah. a little bit of time to go over it.
0: Yeah. And that was the other thing too. I don't know if I've said this before, but when I think about including an inheritance, if I wasn't reading this book, person would be at the top and mathematician would be at the bottom like i think of you know like mm. the you know, like the, the big parent being like all the way at the top and then like the subjects are at the bottom uh so when we talk about this being a tree it obviously makes sense that it's the other way around but even that alone took me some adjusting to be like no the the super like the super 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 class is at the bottom not at the yeah. top so even that was yeah
1: that was new i had that too where it's like it's pointing downwards, but the the important thing is like the semantics of super. And so it is in fact the one that overrides, but yeah, I totally felt that too.
0: Okay. So next we are talking about including one module into another. And I don't know what your reaction was when you saw this, but I was like, oh, this is going to be so weird. This is going to be fun. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So we start by looking at listing 6-7, and we're still dealing with professor and employee. And so here we have the module professor inheriting from employee. And here, Pat basically says, we can't do this. This is reserved for classes, and we can't actually do inheritance when it comes to modules. So we have to find a new way to do that. And so the way we do that is by using include. So we have module professor And then inside that module we have include employee and then we have end. So looking at this, Pat asks, if we are including professor, the module professor into something else, then what happens with the modules that are included in that module? And what methods will Ruby find first and how does it all work? And so for that, we look at 6-12 to help us break that down. So here we start with our R class structure for professor. And it has a super pointer that points to a copy of the employee R class structure. And I think that's generally what we expect, right? We have uh, in this case, a module, but even if it were a class and it had, and it included a module, then we'd have that super pointer pointing to the copy of the module. So that so far is, is normal. And Pat takes a moment to clarify here and says that even though modules can't have a superclass, we talked about how we can't inherit from it, internally, Ruby represents modules like classes. So internally, it can have a superpointer pointing to another R class structure, which is its superclass. So in figure 6-13, we look at how This new module with an included module works when all of that is included in Mathematician. So we have generally two halves of this graphic. On the right side, we have uh, basically the the same figure as 6-12, where we have our professor module and its super pointers pointing to a copy of the included employee class. Uh, And so that's what we have on the right side. Now, on the left side, we start with the R class for mathematician, and the super pointer for that is pointing to a copy of the included professor class. And then the super pointer for the included professor class is pointing to the copy of the copy Mm -hmm. of the included class for employee. And then the super pointer for that copy of the copy of the included class for employee is pointing to the R class structure for person. So I'm not sure. Like I feel like the the lesson here is maybe don't do this. Like it kind of makes me feel like whoa, this got complicated really quickly do I need to worry about this? I don't know what the answer to that is. Like how often do we have included, included modules that we then include? Um, but it was really interesting to just see how, how quickly things escalated. Like we started with a, a, a fairly simple, like here's a copy and here's a pointer. And now we have multiple copies and two inclusions and a lot of pointers and a lot of arrows. So it got complicated pretty fast.
1: Yeah, I think that was more the point of this example to show when you have a module included into another module Already we're getting to the copy of the copy sort of thing. And I think I'm with you on that. Do you really ever want to be doing this? When does it make sense to be doing mm-hmm. this? Maybe yeah, there's a way yeah. that you could re-architect your code perhaps. But I think it's useful just to show how the algorithms still hold and the rules still hold. They just build on top of one another. Mm-hmm. Like it's a yeah. good way of cementing how it actually works by looking at such an example. Right, right, Exactly. So it looks like we've run out of time. So, shall we leave module prepen till next week? Yeah, I like that. So, for me this week, the reading was I'm going to give it ooh, eight or nine. It was a nine, including the module prepen stuff. I think I'm going to stick to it being a nine because it was a bit. Wow. Yeah, um, I'm that's thinking, high. Yeah, nine. That's, but nine, that's the highest
0: you've ever given. Just, no, I you know, gave nine last week. Nine is the highest number that you give. You've given like in general. Yeah, like that, nine, that's your so. Limit okay, so you far. know what? I'm yeah.
1: changing. I'm changing. It's an eight. <laughs> it's about I have to go back. <laughs> yeah, you're right because I'm just thinking of some when I gave nine before, and I don't think it's at the same level. So yeah, thank you for keeping yeah. me uh, straight. Uh, <laughs> I am going with an eight.
0: <laughs> cool. Um, I'm going to go a little bit lower. I'm going to give this one a seven. Ooh
1: i mean, I, <laughs> yeah, because coming from Miss 10, 10 all over the shop lately. I know. I this know, is big,
0: right? Right. This is big. This is big. I'm going to give it a seven because I think there were a few places, specifically with the caches, where I was like, mm, I'm, I'm not sure. It, like that hole to me was significant enough. And I think it would have been pretty easy to close. Uh, and that is kind of like, that is. That just threw me off a little bit. So that, that's the main reason why. Um, but also with this include, include place, like I, I would like to see – I would have liked to have seen how this applies or connects or kind of just what should I do with this information. Like mm. you said, I think that that last example – I think that the main goal was to cement our understanding and our knowledge of how the superclasses work. But there's also – just the real world application of it, which is: Does this mean that I should do this? That I should not do this? Does it just mean that I should be aware that I'm costing Ruby when I make this? You know, I I feel like there was there were a lot of big questions I had around how this should affect the way I code and think about coding. Um, that I I really wish we had gotten into. I think that would have been really helpful.
1: I totally agree with you on that. So we're, we're guessing less about how it's going to be useful, and we can straight away go and apply it or look out for certain right. things. Uh, I, I definitely agree that that would be a great addition to this to this book.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about that also, where I feel like you know, in the beginning when we were talking about YARV instructions and compiling, and was um, was is, what is it's not transcoding? Is it transcoding? Uh,
1: tokenization. Yes, thank you. I knew I
0: would a T and it was a word. I didn't really <laughs> understand. And tokenization and a bunch of things where, you know, at that level there's probably not really a real world application to it. You know, there's probably not much I can do with understanding how tokenization works in terms of, you know, how I adjust my own coding. But I feel like now when we're talking about classes and modules and how these bigger pieces work together in method lookup, I feel like now we have a lot of opportunity to say, this is how Ruby works internally. Therefore, you should do this or you should not do this or you should understand the cost of doing this. And I know there have been a couple points where uh, Pat showed like graph, and said, this is how much faster this is in this thing. And those have been helpful. But I think what would be really cool is if he had like a a call-out box or a little tip or something at the end of each section that says, you know, real-world application, here's how you can take the information about these two caches and really, you know, make your code faster, better by doing this one thing differently. So I think having those explicit connections would be super helpful. For sure so we want to know what did you think of the reading this week tweet us your score at ruby book club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project see you next week cheerio